It's Friday, October 22nd, 2021, and this is What's the Point? show this week, shining a light on Peel Children's Aid Society and the disturbing findings of two different reports that highlight the challenges facing not the young people being served by the organization, but by the staff itself. To talk about it, along with this week's virtual in-studio guest, is your host, Isaac Callan. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of What's the Point? We have an incredibly important topic to talk about today, and one that I think we don't discuss enough. We're going to talk about the Peel Children's Aid Society, or Peel CAS, and talk about allegations of anti-black racism, findings of a toxic work environment, and concerns about financial mismanagement that really go to the top of that organization. For people who aren't familiar with Peel CAS, the organization is responsible for really some of the most vulnerable young people in Brampton and Mississauga. Frontline workers for the CAS, they attend to homes that have been broken by, by addiction, by domestic violence, Frontline workers, they try and keep families together at all costs. And then in in the most difficult situations, they're forced to take children into care to protect young people at all costs. But two different reviews now, one backed by the PLCAS union, another one ordered and backed by the province, have found that PLCAS and its senior management is potentially it's caring for the community, but it's not caring for its staff. These two reviews have documented, like I said, anti-black racism, a toxic work environment, and they show staff are just um, burned out within the organization. They feel underappreciated. Senior management doesn't seem to have much competence when it comes to issues of diversity and inclusion. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's a huge issue in Peel. We talk a lot about the school board. We talk about the police board. And I think we really haven't given enough, enough attention to the CAS, which is this critical frontline organization. So before I introduce our guest for today, I just want to set the scene with a quick quote from the most recent investigation, which was backed by the province, the government of Ontario, and was released on October the 1st this year. And to give you an idea of what staff inside PLCAS have been experiencing for the last year, investigators found, and I I quote, uh, the workplace environment is seriously troubled. The leadership culture is described as command and control. The union management relationship is described as dysfunctional. Communication lacks clarity and transparency. Conflict is avoided. Safe spaces for difficult conversations are lacking and too much change is expected too quickly. So there's a lot a lot to break down, a lot of difficult conversations to be had, and I am delighted to have with us today Rohan Thompson, the founder of Breakthrough Counseling and Wellness, the organization that helped produce the first report into Peel CAS. Uh, Rohan, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Isaac. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Excited to, to be part of this really meaningful uh, conversation. Well, let, let's start that meaningful conversation right back at the beginning, before um, your organization ever actually put pen to paper on a report into PLCAS. I believe you were contracted by the union to facilitate basically, you know, counseling and therapy sessions for black staff, particularly to help them process the events of the summer of 2020, following the murder of George Floyd, some of the Black Lives Matter protests, and then the increase in sort of conversations that took place within various organizations about diversity and how that's approached. So b- before, you know, you had wrote that report, you conducted several sessions where you spoke to staff and you were working in your role as your, a qualified therapist. And I know you'll, you know, you'll have to protect people's privacy, but broadly, mm-hmm. what did you hear from staff during those conversations, those first conversations? Yeah, I think that's a great first question. Um, I, I think, you know, before I answer what I heard, 
I'm, I'm going to speak a little bit to what what I what I observed, right? And and what I observed was a group of staff who are extremely resilient, powerful, brave folks who are so committed to the work and and the families and and the young people that they serve and support. The other thing that was really clear is that um, in the conversation, when folks were talking about the the anti-Blackness that they were experiencing and and, and the impact of that, um, it was clear that they still had hope for the organization and and wanted the organization to be better. And and they were willing to play a role in supporting the organization to to be better. So, you, you know, you have this really weird sort of you know, situation going on where the folks who are experiencing the most harm uh, are probably the most committed to to the organization being better, right? And, and and so those are some of the things that I you know observed, and and it was also extremely, to my observation, was was traumatic. So so again, this really strange, weird situation where folks came together to talk about. Um, how they were traumatized by sort of this global movement around uh, addressing anti-Blackness and these very public, racist, anti-Black incidents that were occurring. And and so they were traumatized by that. But here we are talking about what their experience was like inside their own workspace, and they were re-traumatized in that conversation. So difficult, uh, emotional, and folks were in tears. But I think ultimately what drove the conversation is that there is this deep rooted, deep-seated desire and, and belief and hope that the organization can be better. So I don't want that to get lost, right? And so, you know, to your question around, you know, what did I hear? I heard people uh, be really articulate around not only anti-Black racism, but to get really nuanced and explicit around how it was manifesting, how it was showing up in the organization. I heard people talk about the role of the, the HR department. They talked about the culture of fear. They spoke about uh, senior leadership and how they were complicit actors in the, the ongoing structural and systemic racism uh, that was being experienced in the organization. I also heard a group be critical of themselves as, as an entity, right? So the whole conversation wasn't strictly about, it was mostly about the organization and how the organization was perpetuating anti-Blackness, but they were also uh, critical of themselves. And so if you go into that first report, the staff also talk about some of the work that the union has to do with itself and of itself in order to disrupt its own anti-Blackness, right? And so that says a lot about, about a group of folks who are also able to be very critical critical about, about themselves as well. Folks weren't just talking for the sake of talking. You know, they were also providing some very concrete solutions. This uh, work here, they really made my job very easy in terms of trying to capture what they said and, and sort of tell and honor the story. Um, they, they provided some very concrete, actionable items to be able to disrupt anti-Blackness uh, within, within the organization. So for a group of folks who... By and large, folks who are frontline staff, they're really, you know, in their training and specialization isn't really about organizational change, systems, policy, you know, and all those sorts of things. They were absolutely brilliant around what needed to happen. 
And to pick up on the, the first part of your answer, given the context of what you were retained to do, were you surprised at how much the conversation was so specific about the organization and the union? Or when you were planning those sessions, did you expect to talk a lot about the mechanics of PLCAS and the mechanics of its union? Kind of, kind of yes, kind of no. Often, you know, when we're having conversations sort of in this Canadian context, uh, we often point to our cousins in the South and all of the examples and intense examples of anti-Blackness that is occurring. And gradually the conversation begins to turn in, and in the same instance here, although I didn't have a sense of, of how far it would go, people begin to be really reflective around their own experience. And, and what's happening to them and what is it like in their workspace or what is it like in their neighborhood or what is it like in their school? And so I wasn't, I wasn't surprised that we pivoted. It was, it was never the intention. It was never the plan, but I wasn't surprised that it pivoted towards how people, how their lived experience was sort of happening, but I had no, no clue that it would go so far. And then I want to pick up on particularly the culture of fear that you mentioned. It's something that is in the work that you did. It's something that's repeated again in the work that was done by the province. And we'll get to the work that was done by the province and where it followed your work and where perhaps it deviated. But the culture of fear is something that is true through both reports. It's pretty universal to what a lot of staff have said. And a lot of that appears to go towards the top of the organization, to the senior management, as you said. I mean, specifically, we'll say here, you know, CEO Rav Baines is the leader of the organization. The buck stops with him in terms of its structure. And over the last few years, we've reported, you know, there's been some decisions he's made that are perhaps, you know, questionable. He decided to dismantle the Board Diversity Monitoring Committee, which was an organization set up specifically to act as a watchdog for the PLCAS board to ensure that it was fulfilling its mandate and representing a region as diverse as Peel. The CAS under his leadership also dismantled allyship sessions, which were set up specifically to coach generally non-black staff in how to deal with their own issues of internal bias and unconscious bias. As, as you know, we've said with the culture of fear, both reports are littered with examples of staff who are genuinely seem to be terrified and overworked, underappreciated really, by an organization which has built its reputation on their diligent vocational work. With a focus specifically on senior leadership, and I know you said you know there were a lot of solutions, what did you hear from staff about senior management and what did you hear that they wanted to change. Right. I think, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, uh, Isaac. I think that one of the things that I want to say is that in terms of the the, the ministry review, um, I hope that the staff sort of felt a bit affirmed around their comments and what they provided to their report and the same concerns were amplified in in the ministry report. So I hope that staff felt affirmed in that. So what did I hear about in these conversations in regards to, to senior leadership? We heard that overwhelmingly leadership is not taking seriously the concerns around Black staff and, and, and Black Black service users not taking seriously the need to connect Black families with with Black workers, that the leadership is is perceived and experienced as not being trustworthy, in particular addressing the needs and, and, and well-being of Black staff, that the agency is not leveraging and utilizing the skills and abilities of Black staff. Often Black staff are expected to tell their stories and be, and be re-traumatized time and time again, but yet the organization is not responding to that same very racist violence 
that they are experiencing. I heard issues around leave policy and leave of absence policy and it not being applied equitably in the organization and that Black staff were experiencing you know, more punitive measures, you know, sort of through that practice than than non-Black staff were experiencing. We heard a lot in regards to to human resources, uh, that human resources is operating, you know, sort of over-surveilling Black bodies and and sort of weaponizing their positional power against Black staff and, and that ultimately silencing staff, that HR is not taking head-on issues around having difficult conversations around anti-Blackness. Folks talk about their their observations of nepotism uh, within the organization and that jobs are given to relatives and, and, and friends and, and favored are favored in that sort of way. And, and many Black staff are sort of left out because they're not in the network, so to speak. So these were just some of, of the comments in regards to the experiences of, of staff uh, that they articulated in, in, in the sessions. And, and so ultimately, you know, this culture of fear then, then leads to a level of, of silence, right? Uh, where people are, are choosing out of necessity um, and survival to keep their head down, uh, keep their mouth shut, and, and just keep moving along and, and really taking uh, this particular abuse that is wreaking havoc and, and racist violence, which is wreaking havoc on their, on their mental health and, and, and well-being. And I mean, you have extensive experience for our listeners. You have extensive experience working, helping, you know, advisory roles with Peel Police, and we work with the Peel District School Board as well. You're not unaware of these issues, particularly of anti-black racism in Peel region. What you've described in Peel CAS, is that common or were you surprised that it was potentially even worse than some of these organizations where it's so well documented? Um, I, I wasn't surprised, you know, and Isaac, you, you bring up a really, a really great point, and I think it context also matters. So here in Peel region, and, and you mentioned this in, in your opening statements, is that the region itself with some of its biggest institutions are struggling with addressing their own anti-Blackness and, and, and systemic racism in those organizations. So Peel uh, District School Board being well-documented, Peel Regional Police being well, well-documented. We've had stories come out in regards to, to the city of Brampton. And, you know, since these are some of the most major institutions in our, in, in our region. So, so no, it wasn't surprising when staff began to articulate so clearly around their experiences and, and what was happening. No surprise there, because if we start from the proposition or the, or the position that racism is operating, that anti-Blackness is operating, then the work to do is really to figure out, so what does it look like and how do we address it? Uh, we're not trying to figure out if it's operating. The assumption is that it's operating because, because racism is always at play here. And so if you take that position, there was no surprise around, around what staff were saying because we see it happening all across all of our major institutions in, in the region. And I think this is probably a good point to point out that the Peel CAS works really hand in glove with a lot of the organizations that we've talked about. A lot of the referrals that Peel CAS staff respond to come from the school board. They come from the police. They sometimes come from the hospital system and they come from immigration. And those are organizations which have their own issues to deal with. And so staff are sort of, they're dealing with referrals that come from organizations that have their own well-documented problems, which mm-hmm. adds an extra layer of accountability for PLCAS to ensure that it is responding effectively to the referrals that it needs to and not 
playing a role of over-policing. And I should point out at, at this point that the provincial investigation found that PLCAS is serving the community pretty well. It's fairly well perceived in the community, and it suggested that the issues were far more internal with the staff experience than they were external. But I think you heard, Rohan, when you were talking to staff mm. about how they felt when they worked with uh, Peel District School Board or the Peel Police. Could you talk about that briefly? Yeah. So, so again, the, the folks that, that were part of the, these discussions um, were the frontline staff, and they're the folks who are working most closely with the families and, and, and with the young people. So, you know, there's a particular knowledge um, and wisdom and, and, and expertise that those folks have. And so, you know, they really made it clear in those conversations that, well, no, it's it's not all all roses, and that that yes, there are issues from a service provision perspective to to some of the most vulnerable populations within our region. You know, and particularly those who identify as African Caribbean and Black. Uh, we saw in the report, and and and, and I think it's it, this is this is interesting, right? Because you know, I don't want to get too much into the, to the report itself, but you know, there was a section of the report that was taking a look at the percentages or the rate of which particular racialized identities are are in care. And we saw that those who identify in black, they, you know, at PLCS in care, something to the tune of, you know, I don't know if it was like 22 or 23 percent or, you know, something along those lines. Well, black population in Peel region is somewhere between, you know, seven and 10 percent. Right. And so we see this 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 over representation uh, of black bodies in care, and, you know, and being over surveilled, over police and ultimately being brought into to the system disproportionate to their percentage in, in, in the population. But there was nothing in the report that sort of even highlighted that and brought that to attention. So there's a disconnect between, hey, everything's roses, but yet disproportionately, we have way more Black families in care than, than, than other identities, right? And this is, I mean, this is, you've documented some of this. When you talk about the report there, just to be clear, you're talking about the ministry review that came out last month and not the breakthrough counseling uh, uh, report. Yes, yes correct, the, the ministry review. Thank you. And but in, in the the review that I suppose you took you took part in, there were examples of very personal examples of how black staff felt when they were working with these other organizations. And I think specifically around sort of how they felt patronized and they felt discriminated against while trying to do their jobs on the front lines. It wasn't just concern about the referrals, whether they were the correct referrals, but it was also concern that principals or police officers, I think were the two examples that I remember, were treating the black staff differently was that a, a theme that you heard as well yeah that that definitely came up in in the conversations there um you know there was a story um i recall about a plcas staff black staff and responding to to a call and then when said person showed up to the call they were being asked for their credentials and phone calls needed to be made to verify who that staff person was, right? So here you are, professional, showing up, you know, you're not just going to sort of randomly, you know, walk into a place um, and say, hey, I'm a CAS worker at the same time when they've just made a call requesting, you know, a CAS staff. And then that said person has to experience, you know, that racism, that discrimination, that anti-Blackness, that dehumanizing episode of being asked for credentials when when they fully well know that's the person 
And even when they provided the credentials, phone calls needed to be made to verify that said person was who they were, right? And so you heard a number of those kinds of stories around even the experience of Black staff uh, interfacing and, and interacting with other organizations, right, and other systems. For sure. And then I, I want to move the timeline along slightly. I, I have notes in front of me about some of the issues around financial mismanagement that I really want to talk about. And I don't know if we're going to distract too much from the topic at hand. So I'll, be, I'll run through it briefly and just urge people to go to the Pointers website, read our coverage. The financial element of this, it links into it. It's questions around how the organization is run as a top-down structure, which impacts how staff experience their time in the organization. There's just one example, I think, that jumps out from the ministry report, which is the example of an expense of $1,000 for a flight to San Francisco made by Rav Baines, the CEO, in August 2019. That's an expense that he made using a subordinate's credit card, which bypassed the board approval process for how that expense should have gone through, um, and was also an expense that, according to the provincial report, he should never have been able to claim because PLCAS staff aren't allowed to claim for travel outside of the country. So that was just one example. When uh, it was raised in 2021, two years after he claimed the expense, Rav Baines did pay it back, but not until it was raised. 2021 is roughly the same time that the province was beginning its investigation. PLCAS says that that was for a training day. We've not really had more details than that. That's something that we are covering. And there are other questions around the financial management of PLCAS which we've got into in detail on the Pointers website. So please read them as well. It's part of the story, but I want to focus this episode while I have you as well, Rohan, on the staff experience, because I think that's where we're going to get the most, most done. And on that, I want to move forward to after your report is completed, you submit it to the union. There's then some pushback from Peel CAS's leadership. They say they want to work together with the union and that actually it was their idea in the first place to talk to black staff. There's a bit of disagreement about that. And dysfunction between the union and the leadership is a, is a key feature that the provincial report also touches on. But yeah, once you have finished those sessions and you've done that counseling, what happens next? Yeah, great question. So I think, you know, so I just want to circle back a little bit and you know, you spoke, you know, about some of the findings in the in the report, and I and I don't want to comment to the findings in the report because you've you, you've you've just done that in regards to some of the financial matters and such. But what I would say, and I think it's really important for for folks to to hear, for your listeners to hear, is that when there are concerns and issues around anti-black racism, anti-black uh, racist violence, systemic racism. And we're hearing, in particular, Black voices talking about the type of violence that they're experiencing in the workplace. I think folks need to begin to see that and understand it as a bit of a canary in the coal mine, right? It, it's the signal that there are things that are very wrong in the organization. And so when you have this ministry back review, the ministry review much more comprehensive than the exercise that we that that we did, but it really began to unearth what, you know, what some of these major issues are. And so this is why this is another reason why we have to pay attention to and respond and investigate when there are concerns of anti-blackness that are raised and brought forward uh, because it's an indicator and a signifier that there is more going on. Right. So I think that's really important for 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 us to, to sort of name in this conversation today and, and, and for your listeners to to also to take. Sorry, just repeat. Yeah, come back with your question again. 
Of course, no, then you're absolutely right. And I appreciate you bringing it up. The, the question is basically after the report is completed, what happens next? What's your involvement and what happens to the organization as a whole over the months that follow? Yeah, so good question. So after after my involvement and, you know, so we had the multiple sessions really to sort of deconstruct, you know, the experience in people's mental health and wellness, the decision is made to say, well, you know, hold on a second. There's a lot of, of data that we have collected here. Is this sort of report worthy? And to be able to use this, uh, all of this very rich data and lived experience to try to facilitate and be in sort of an incubator for change. And so resoundingly, folks felt that that was the, the direction to go and then sort of commissioned me to sort of finish writing the report that you've seen and, and was sort of distributed throughout the organization. After that, my involvement, um, I was having some conversations um, uh, with the union and, and with the Black leadership within the union. Those conversations were really around where do they go next? And so, again, you know, that group being a very brilliant group really identified opportunities or the necessity to get support from, you know, sort of from their provincial and to actually turn around and, and bring their concerns to the ministry uh, for the hopes for the ministry to come and take a deeper dive into what was going on and, and, and really hear their voices. Because remember also contextually, York CAS had just come off of a ministry review, having a ministry review completed. And Peel District School Board, not that long ago, had their ministry review completed. So these things are sort of hovering in the orbit and sort of name a pathway for folks to sort of reach out and get attention because what their experience was is that if this was just brought to the senior leadership, it was never going to get the traction that that it required, right? And so I had a number of conversations uh, with the union and with the Black leadership within the union around, you know, next steps and, and where to go. And, and, and so ultimately, they charted their own path in how to get this taken up. Yeah, and that leads to, in early 2021, the province agreeing to a third-party review, then around April, then selecting the two organizations to do the review. Uh, the review of PLCS isn't completely the same as the review of the Peel District School Board, for example, because it was contracted out to a third party rather than appointing individual investigators. That happens around April. A first draft then is finished in July, and it's finished in September and handed to the ministry, and we get to the release of this report uh, on the 1st of October this year, which I suppose comes full circle on more than a year where staff at PLCAS have really been reliving and, and articulating their experience and how they've, how they've experienced the organization and the management. And I think, I think we've touched on it a bit. We've sort of previewed this question a little already. I don't want to editorialize too much, but I thought there were some really interesting parts to the provincial review there were some really strong parts particularly the financial audit again that stuff was very yes telling some of the information around the workplace culture was also very interesting but it's worth pointing out that the group who completed that was a it was a conflict resolution firm rather than necessarily an organization that specialized in systemic racism or anti-black racism or anything like that and so with with that specifically they were i think it was strong on the culture but it maybe didn't name some of the issues in the way that you did. And reading that review, were there, I mean, some positives and perhaps some areas where you thought it, it could have been stronger? Yeah, I, I think uh, overall, I, I thought that the report was good. It was, it was 
it was very strong in some areas. I think as you spoke about in regards to the financial matters and, and sort of the workplace culture, I think it was really strong in regards to some of the performance management pieces. Yeah, so, so, so overall, I, the, the report had some really strong components to it. From my observation, I think where the report, um, there was opportunity for it to sort of hit a lot harder is it didn't really center anti-Blackness as a primary issue, right? And I think that's really important because the whole reason, the primary reason why it even got to a ministry review, the only reason why this third party was brought in, the only reason why all of this work even happened is because Black union staff organized and mobilized and acted and ensured that their story and their narrative was articulated, organized, and communicated. And so to get this ministry-backed review and it not center that issue, because that, that's how we got here, um, I think was, uh, was a missed opportunity. And so you see that throughout the report um, is those opportunities to really put an anti-Black racism lens, not only in the narration and the analysis, but also in the, in the recommendations. It comes up pretty short if you put in context that it was the anti-Blackness that captured the ministry's attention and brought folks in, if that makes sense. It does, absolutely. And I don't think I'll follow, follow up on that, actually. I think that speaks for itself. <laughs> um, the, the last question, and I think it's the hardest question, really, but it's the most important. It's the one that um, you know, I've heard, the one doing my reporting. I'm sure it's something you've heard from staff as well. But it's, it's what does PLCAS do next? You know, they hit the, you know, the nuclear option, as it were. They called in the ministry. The ministry did a review. But now, I mean, there's some context for our listeners is the way it works once the review is completed is PLCAS and its senior management is now tasked with completing a work plan. So they have 45 working days from the submission of the report in which to come up with a solution in-house to the problems laid out in the provincial review. They have to go through through it bullet point by bullet point and work out how they're going to address those issues. But it's very much in their hands. They will then give that to the ministry and the ministry will either approve it or say that it needs more work. But it means that even after this review has taken place, the senior leadership, which has been pretty roundly criticized throughout by staff and in both reviews that have taken place, they're still in control of this process and it's still really happening on their terms. And so I think a lot of staff have been left feeling pretty deflated. I think they perhaps expected more action to come from this report. So uh, yeah, with your experience and your knowledge in this area, what do the unions do next and what do staff do next? Yeah, that's a that's a that's an important question. It's, it's, a, it's a tough question. So I'm going to answer it a little bit a little bit differently. And and what I mean is, and, and I touched on this a little bit earlier, is that these conversations originated with the union and, and, and with the with the black staff union, right? Members of the union who who identify as African, Caribbean, and Black. And so those folks, you know, predominantly are, you know, sort of frontline, frontline staff, right? And they came into this work. They came into this work to do the very laborious but necessary and important work of working directly with with families and working with youth um, and making sure those those families are protected and, and, and well taken care of. 
many of these folks didn't come into this work to do change management and to do structural change and to be advocates to organizational reform and such. But because they they were the, the center and the focus and they bore the brunt of the racist violence, they were compelled to turn around and act. And I think that those folks have already done enough. This ministry review doesn't happen if it wasn't for them, right? This this conversation that we're having right now doesn't happen if it wasn't for those folks. If you turn around and you look at the recommendations in the report that they asked me to do, they asked Breakthrough to do, the union and the Black staff have basically checked off the majority of those recommendations, what they were tasked to do. And so I think the question now becomes is, what is the job of senior leadership? What is the job of the board? What is the job of the ministry? What is the responsibility of the community to pick up the work that the Black union frontline staff have, have they've punched way above their weight class, way above their weight class. And, and so we owe them a tremendous amount of respect and gratitude. And, and how are we going to honor that gratitude? And I think all of the folks that I just mentioned have, have a responsibility, have a responsibility to model what this small but mighty group did and follow through with what it is that they've started. And that's what I think needs to happen next. So work like this that you're doing, Isaac, and the folks at The Pointer in really amplifying this, this is an example of what the community needs to do and must do. And I think the the same goes for the ministry and the same goes for the the board of directors or the executive or, or, you know, and the broader community also has to get very active in this because these folks, while they're experiencing, I'm talking about the Black Union members in CIS, while they're experiencing this intense violence, they are the most vulnerable, and yet they're being asked and be expected to do to do the majority of the heavy lifting. It's just not feasible. It's just not fair. It's just not right. Right? It's not sustainable. Absolutely. I think we will we'll leave it on that <laughs> note. Thank you so much, Rohan. No, really. Rohan Thompson, the founder of Breakthrough Counseling and Wellness, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. We really appreciate your your insights and your really powerful dialogue as well. This week's show was hosted by Isaac Callan, produced by Anukul Thakar, sound engineering by yours truly, music from Shahed. Check out new episodes of What's the Point weekly at thepointer.com and find us now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Chalmers. Thank you for listening. See you next time.